You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Last time we talked about types and symbols. I'd ask you if you have any questions, but I know you just got it all down just perfectly. I know I haven't. It's still a massive area of study and an ongoing study for me. And uh, so, but are there any thoughts you might have or questions on what we looked at last time? The basic definitions and uh, for the six qualifications, I think we kind of focused in on that quite a bit last time for a type, according to Dr. Zook. And again, a reminder that he has a certain perspective as a seminary professor, okay? He is going to look at hermeneutics from the standpoint of preparing people to do exegesis of texts, and then the exegesis of text leads leads to the exposition of text. You know, you draw it out through exegesis, and then you put it out through exposition. So, plus he's also seen a lot of the uh, abuse over the years that's happened with um, faulty hermeneutics and faulty things, and and typology is one of those. And typology is one of those things that if you don't that number six there, a clear New Testament antitype. If you don't sort of uh, shut the gate on that one, you, you're going to have all kinds of things happen because almost anything can become a type, and and it does in some interpretive circles. So, any thoughts that you might have on that? We did talk about some pitfalls, like what could go wrong, pitfalls in in how we look at these things in Scripture, both um, types and symbols, and. Um, as I was thinking about that during during the week, I thought, well, what are some of the other historic pitfalls that, that have happened? Uh, here's something I ran across, just as kind of a, uh, a thought for how we interpret things. This is from uh, Warren Wiersbe. In Scripture, water for drinking is a picture of the Spirit of God, while water for washing is a picture of the Word of God. In other words, a single symbol, water, can have multiple reference, the Spirit of God and the Word of God in multiple contexts. So the lesson there is, be careful about making sure you understand it in its context, the context that it occurs in Scripture. And so um, here's another one, sons of God. In the Old Testament, it is always angelic beings, could be fallen or unfallen. But in the New Testament, it's always believers. So a single phrase or word might have different meanings in different testaments or even in different contexts. Um, you could even, uh, there's, there's quite a few, and you could probably think of some others as well. Um, in John 1.14, in John's prologue, he's already established this one he's calling the Word as the eternal one. And then in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and he uses the word sarks from in the Greek word sarks. But the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter five and elsewhere, but several times in that whole passage, 
He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And he uses that exact same word. So if the eternal Holy Word became flesh, but then Paul is warning Christians to walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, uh, you have to see those two as they're being used in their context um, by two different writers. And uh, you can't import the meaning or usage from one context into the other. Okay, and, and there's lots of things like that. You probably run across them as well. Make sure you see it in its context, and um, it, it, it will, there will be consistency there. Here's one from Exodus 34:29. Kind of an his, interesting historic what could go wrong pitfall. Um, this is from the LSB. This is a really good um, interpretation of this passage. Exodus 34, 29. You remember Moses went up on the mountain. He received the law. He came back down and saw the idolatry of the Israelites and threw down the tablets and broke them. And then he went back up and he came back down. It says, now it happened when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, spoke to God face to face, and the glory of God then was radiating off his face as he came down the mountain. Um, in the 16th century, Michelangelo was commissioned by the Pope to create a sepulcher for the Pope, that the Pope would have a place to be buried. And one of the things, part of it, was that he would uh, carve these multiple statues to decorate this this sepulcher so the Pope would have a uh, proper burial place. Um, this is the original drawings that Michelangelo did. This thing was going to have a kind of a two-stage deal with as many as 40 uh, these carved characters all the way around it, very, very elaborate. Um, there was some kind of a conflict, and the Pope uh, backed out of the deal. Michelangelo got mad and left town, but then he came back, and he started it up again. It's quite an intricate story of, of uh, conflict and things like that. He actually had already gone to this quarry and spent a couple of months selecting tons of marble and drug it back, and then the guy backed out of the deal. He got mad and left town. Well, he came back and started all over again, but then the Pope died, so he had no use for it, and then the money wasn't available to finish it and things like that. So they wound up just doing, instead of a great big four-cornered sepulcher, they just did one big front panel paid for by somebody else, and the statue of Moses, which was supposed to wind up on the top, wound up right down there. This can, you can visit this right now in uh, Italy, uh, and the Pope, after all, wasn't even buried there. He was buried someplace else, but the statue of Moses that Michelangelo did, very, very interesting and absolutely incredible what he could do with marble, but people have noticed, and obviously through the, you know, very quickly noticed that Moses has horns on top of his head. And uh, there they are right there. Moses with horns. Now, in medieval and also Renaissance art, it was very common for Moses to be depicted with horns on his head. Okay, Here's just uh, several different kinds. There he is, some painting. This wasn't Michelangelo, somebody else. Different kinds of statues, Moses with horns. There he is. Some of them even look a little bit uh, uh, ominous or even demonic. Very common. Here's two different 
depictions he's receiving the law over here, and here he is over here throwing the law down, but both of them, he's got horns on his head. Again, all this different artwork, medieval, Renaissance art. Kind of hard to see that one, but they're there. Moses with horns. And some of them are almost demonic looking. And there's one associated clearly with uh, the Star of David. So what is going on here? How in the world did Moses ever wind up with horns on his head? Well, it was an issue of interpretation. Uh, here it is again from Exodus 34:29. The skin on his face shone because of his speaking with him. Well, how did we get from that to horns? Well, the Hebrew word, the verb to shine or radiate is karan, karan. But the Hebrew noun for horn is keren. Okay? Now you can see the same letters are used. Hebrew's built on a what's called a triradical root. It's all consonants. There aren't any vowels at all. So the same three letters are used in both those words, but the pronunciation is different. But there was no vowels or no pronunciation uh, that you could actually see. And if you weren't a native Hebrew speaker, you would uh, not know the difference between those two. And so there it is. Karan, to shine or radiate, that's a verb. And then Karen, horn. Karen, you can see the little vowel points down below. Those were added later on, centuries later. Um, Karen, there it is. It uh, has two of what are called the segol, those three little dots, three little dots. And it's read, of course, from, from right to left. So that would be keren, eh, eh. And it's called a segolit noun. Segolit nouns have the stress on the first syllable. So you, you would pronounce it keren. Others would be like eretz, the word for land, equally translated land or uh, earth, first verse in the Bible. Uh, so, that's the actual uh, word that was mistaken. Karen to shine or radiate, which is in the text, but mistaken for horn. Latin Vulgate in the 4th century by Jerome, he translated from the Hebrew and chose in the Latin to use the word cornuta. And it's closely related to the word cornucopia or horn of plenty that you see around Thanksgiving time, right? A horn. And it means horned. So the Latin Vulgate, which was the commonly used uh, Bible of the day, had the word in Latin, horned. And in the 1635, it was finally finished. The Catholic English translation, called the Douay Reims translation, translated not from the original Hebrew and Greek, but from the Latin. So even into the English of the Douay Reims translation, and they saw that the face of Moses when he came out was horned, but he covered his face again if at any time he spoke to them. So that's how Moses wound up with horns by a misunderstanding and a mistranslation of uh, that particular word. Um, one thing he did get right, though, he might not have been a uh, fantastic student of the Word of God, but obviously a master sculptor and craftsman. And it's been noticed that when he portrays Mo Moses' hand, especially his little finger, his pinky, slightly raised, he also very accurately depicted 
the uh, tensioning of that little muscle up in the upper forearm that controls the pinky. Okay. In fact, you can put your arm on the table and uh, raise your pinky, and you can see that that muscle deflect, and you can even feel it. So he was uh, not only a master craftsman and a master sculptor, but he was also a very, very particular student of human anatomy. In fact, he had been doing autopsies and taking apart bodies since he was about 18 years old. But uh, it's been noticed that that is a detail there that he included. That is the extensor, extensor digiti minimi muscle. It originates on the lateral epicondyle of the humerus and inserts in the middle of the distal phalanges of the fifth digit. It's innervated by the deep radial nerve, C7 and C8, and it extends the wrist and the fifth digit. Another comment here. So the pinky is extended all on its own by the extensor digiti minimi. So he got that right, so you kind of like to give credit where credit is due. Okay. But Moses wound up with horns. And it's also thought that there may be some anti-Semitic sentiment there. Maybe Jerome wasn't quite as ignorant as people say he might have been concerning how to translate from Hebrew into Latin. Um, because there was an uh, extensive anti-Semitism in the church, the Catholic church, and it had come down through history and was still there. And in fact, it's still there to this very day. And the, the, the way they related to the Jewish people. And even if you go back in the, in the history of the medieval and Renaissance times and you look at the iconography, the artwork and the publications and things, and even statues and even the way they would decorate churches, many times it would have anti-Semitic pictures and anti-Semitic um, carvings and things that uh, denigrated the Jewish people. And some of them absolutely horrific. Okay. So, but we'll give Jerome a, a break this time and say, well, he just mistranslated that. Okay? The Apostle Paul got it right. 2 Corinthians 3 7. The sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, which was being brought to an end. Okay? So, any other thoughts you might have about uh, types and symbols before we look at questions on page 36? You can go home and tell your kids about. The pink, the muscle that extends the pinky, and that Michelangelo depicted that on the statue of of uh, Moses. Well, how about questions on page thirty six? A true type will be anchored in history, and so can be interpreted literally. True. Yeah. Go ahead and call them out. We'll just move right through these. Both types and illustrations in Scripture are designed by God. True, yeah. And there's a chart on page 178, too, that shows that. In a type-antitype relationship, the antitype is always lesser than the type. That would be false, yeah. And uh, again, we talked about the the word anti-antitype and how in you know our common usage in English it means against, but this is sort of theological jargon for m- something that is more the fulfillment of it or... The, uh, the, the thing that makes it make sense. Allegorizing a text fails at every point as an interpretive tool. That's true, yeah. Can't do it. And as we're going to see, that's, I put it in quotes because allegorizing is different than looking at an allegory. Okay? That's, that's an important thing. We need to make sure we keep those separate. 
A type looks ahead to the antitype, whereas an illustration looks back. That's true. According to the writer of Hebrews, Melchizedek is only an illustration. That's false, yeah. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. That right there, just the name by itself, is a uh, very close relationship to who Jesus Christ is. Well, number two, according to our study, why was Adam not a type of Christ? Yeah. Many things you can say were an illustration, uh, but he wasn't a type according to this, this, the definition that we looked at. And you could also, you know, you would have to be careful not to take it too far because he was also a fir- the first sinner and responsible for sin entering into the human race. So that definitely was not uh, what Christ was about. What's that? Was not very protective of his wife. Yeah, failed in his responsibilities. Predictive, yeah. Was not predictive, okay. Um, yeah, he wasn't simply, um, you could say, an, uh, an analogy maybe or an illustration, not prophetic or forward-looking. Well, then number three, like a type, a symbol is representative of something else. That's true. A symbol is fulfilled in time by what it symbolizes. False. Yeah, one of the main differences is that the type actually looks ahead and and in almost in a prophetic sense to that antitype which will fulfill it. But you don't know that a symbol a symbol simply looks back in time and you can see what it um, what it is representing. A symbol is only symbolic because of how it is used in a given context. That's true. Since God is my rock, he is extremely hard and sharp-edged. That's false, of course. Now, that would be a violation over on page 35 of number 2. Don't assign all the characteristics of the symbol to the referent. Just, you you can't do that. Uh, People do that kind of thing all the time, but you can't do it. In Revelation 19, the lake of fire which burns with brimstone is symbolic. That's false. Now, I could have said the lake of fire which burns with brimstone is only symbolic. If I were a liberal and rejected major doctrines of Scripture, I might say, well, that's only symbolic and the reason I would give would be maybe something like, well, God is too loving and too kind and too charitable and too compassionate to throw somebody into a lake of fire. It doesn't make sense. So it's only symbolic. But then you have to ask questions, symbolic of what? Um, the way it's described and how it's stated, there's nothing in the context to lead you to think that it might be other than very literal. If I don't see divine design in a context, I should feel free to allegorize it. False. Or spiritualize it. Yeah, that would be importing a meaning from the outside onto, onto the text of Scripture. Scripture speaks of a temple to be built in the millennial kingdom in a very detailed and lengthy prophecy in Ezekiel 40-48. through 48. All millennial theologian Floyd Hamilton wrote this. This goes clear back to the 1940s. The restoration of the whole sacrificial system seems to dishonor the sacrifice of Christ. 
According to a literal interpretation of Ezekiel 40-48, the whole ceremonial law is to be again set up in Israel. Okay? Now, what are your thoughts on that? Now, this article here from the commentary certainly is going to address some of these issues. Um, so I hope you can find some time to read through that. But uh, have any thoughts on that? That comment from Floyd Hamilton? Is there anything in that passage, and maybe you haven't had a chance to read it, that suggests that it is a resetting up of the entire ceremonial system? No, it's not there. Um, also, in the millennium, um, this it doesn't say anything about the Gentiles of the millennial participating in this. This would be for, for the Jews. And it's simply something other than a sacrificial, uh, uh, a s- sacrificial system that's designed to take away sins. The Old Testament system did not cleanse people of their cleanse their conscience or pay for their sins. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says: the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. And it was simply a covering made by people who were obedient to God in doing that. So. Um, there's a lot more to that, but that that historically is kind of an argument that's gone on. It's still going on right now. Um, people will often talk about that uh, in, in the in the arguments versus the future historical things that are, that are what took place here compared to what's going to take place in the future, that type of thing, and how it's applied. We're going to talk about prophecy next time, so uh, uh, that's that's part of that picture, and. Um, there is a pretty good quote there. It should say Pentecost quote page 99. So there's a good quote there. I hope you take a look at that. Any other thoughts you might have on types or symbols? Okay, let's look at parable, parables and allegories. Parables and allegories. A parable... Parabolain from para alongside and balo to throw, to throw alongside. And definitions, a parable is an extended simile whose imageries always involve facts true to life. Parables are narratives which use earthly elements to teach spiritual truths. The spiritual truth could have been enunciated plainly, but when clothed in parabolic dress, it arouses attention and fastens itself on the memory. So here again, this in part is designed to help people memorize these truths with these word pictures. But also, here's another part of this whole parable thing. First, it is a method of teaching the responsive disciple. At the end of the first parable, our Lord said, He that has, hath ears to hear, let him hear, Luke 8.8. 8. The second intent of parabolic teaching was to hide the truth from the unresponsive and so is a test of a person's spiritual responsiveness of whether he has the spiritual intention to follow through and learn its meaning. So very interestingly, it does both of those things. It reveals the truth to belief, but it conceals the truth from unbelief. And you remember we talked about last time when the Lord began to do that uh, concerning the kingdom, parables, uh, Matthew chapter 13, well, in Matthew chapter 12, there was this uh, 
rejection of him, final rejection. They accused him of doing his miracles by the power of Satan, and he pronounced judgment on them. And it, for all intents and purposes, at that point in time, it was over for that generation of uh, Jewish people. And uh, the judgment was set in motion, and he began to teach in parables and then would uh, explain the meaning to his disciples. And uh, so, kind of a very crude uh, illustration here, a curved line, that would be the truth that you're trying to communicate to people, let's say. How would I do that? Well, I might throw down a parable in the form of a straight line. Well, I could describe that, that curved line Maybe by uh, just talking about it, and maybe if I was really good in math, particularly I probably need calculus to figure out that, or maybe if I set up a grid of some kind, you know, and I could plot all those points. But um, a parable would be you would just cast alongside of it the straight line, and you get a visual picture of that curve. Okay, that's kind of a, a very simple illustration, but that's what a parable does. The curved line is the truth you're trying to communicate, and you simply cast alongside of it the parable, the story that leads people to see what that truth is. Okay? So, extended figures of speech compared. So now we're collecting all of these terms on all these different kinds of things. Um, I won't go through every one of these. There's simile, metaphor, similitude, parable, and allegory. And there's also a, a set of charts, page 91 and 92. Let's go ahead and look at page 91 and 92. These charts are both found in a book by a scholar named A. Berkeley Mickelson, a good book on interpretation from 1963. They're about, they occur in the book uh, several pages apart. But through the, the magic of copy and paste, I was able to get them on opposite pages so we can kind of line them up and look at them. But one of the things I wanted to point out, over on the right-hand chart on page 92, you see the simile, similitude, and parable, and you see the differences between them. Now, the only difference between a similitude and a parable is number five customary habit, almost a timeless truth for a similitude, but a parable is a particular example, a specific occurrence. And they're so close together that uh, down at the bottom there, Mickelson says, note that the similitude and the parable are almost identical, hence throughout the rest of the discussion, the word parable will be used in a general way to cover both the similitude and what is technically called a parable. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that. The similitude is going to have a, a timelessness to it or a generally agreed upon principle that, that the parable generally does not have. Take a look at, um, let's see, let's find one here to look at. Well, I was thinking specifically of the, um, there's so many of them here, parable of the... Uh, no, I can't find it. And the reason I wanted to point it out was because in the ESV, the chapter heading says parable. All right? But when you read it, it's really a similitude. Okay? So they're not making that real fine distinction. Um, uh, when it says something like, um, which one of you, if he loses a sheep, 
will not pursue that sheep. So the parable of the, the lost sheep, okay? Now what he's doing there, that's a similitude because he's appealing to common knowledge and common standards of the people. And he puts it in the form of a question. And, uh, and then the, the parable of the lost coin, it actually says in the chapter heading in the ESV, the parable of the lost coin. But uh, the, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, meet that criteria because it's more of a similitude when he appeals to the general knowledge of people or the general standard of, well, if this happens, wouldn't you do this? Everybody would. What kind of a man would not do this? So I just wanted to point out that difference in those um, what is it? Luke 15. Yeah, and, and uh, Luke 15 right there on the page. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one? That's an appeal to common knowledge or common sense. Of course you would do that. So, so that's, that's a characteristic of a similitude. And uh, the, one that, the one that comes right after that is uh, called a parable, and it's probably not. This one is a parable. For this son of, this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, see, that's just more of a statement of, of fact and the way the, even the, the verbs are used. Then an allegory, I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. John 10, 7, and 11. And again, the chart on page 91, I think would be helpful to see the comparisons of those. He lays them all out. And then at the bottom there, the definition of a parable, we pointed out that parables have one chief point of comparison, and that's the focus of the parable. It is important for us to relate the basic emphasis of each parable to the central idea in Jesus' message. The message of Jesus centered in and revolved around the reign of God. I think that's a great statement. The Greek word basileia, which designates the royal reign or kingdom of God, appears over 100 times in the gospel. Hence, the parables serve to illustrate and unfold various aspects of the reign of God. I think that's the, the theme of the entire Bible, myself, is the kingdom of God. And if you would rather say, no, I think it's the sovereignty of God, okay, you can call it the sovereignty of God. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing from a different angle as far as I'm concerned, but start to finish the kingdom of God, the kingdom or sovereign rule of God over his creation. Um, I think that is the theme of scripture cover to cover. And what he's doing in the parables is, is uh, explaining how that works. So there's the observation of seeing those for what they are. And then at the top of page 38, interpretation, the task of seeing the meaning. Um, Pretty good quote, page 197 in your reading, down at the bottom. Parables encouraged people to think. By drawing analogies, Jesus wanted his hearers to pass a judgment on things on which they were well acquainted, and then to compel them to transfer that judgment to something to whose significance they had been blind. This is a quote from a commentator named Barclay and another one named Jones. So he's getting them presenting a word picture that's about something else, forcing them to pass judgment on what he wants them to see. It says, Jesus did not narrate the parables simply to entertain audiences with stories. He relayed the parables so that those for whom they were intended would apply them, even if resentfully or reluctantly, to themselves. 
His parables were thus often disarming, okay? And they were. And he would even tell stories and parables about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And uh, sometimes they were a little slow on the uptake. But uh, most of the time, they eventually, they eventually got it. Well, what are some basic rules for interpreting parables? First thing we should do, and, and this is going to be consistent with everything we've seen so far, seek first the natural, normal, what we're calling the literal meaning, of the true-to-life incident to be able to grasp the spiritual truth of the parable. Okay, Very important. And then number two, let the context help you ask questions. And these are our developmental questions. You may not get an answer from every single verse or passage for each one of these, but that's that's not important. What you want to do, though, is have those questions sort of uh, operating in the background. Who, what, when, where, why, and so on. Who's the one speaking? Who's he speaking to? Who are these characters, and what would they have meant to the people that were hearing them, and and that type of thing? What happened in Matthew chapter 12 that sets up chapter 13? We've talked about that. What about the timeline in the narrative? How much of the parable is interpreted by Christ himself? And then what's the listener response? What kind of a response did he get? If they were in unbelievers and he told a parable, they just went right over their head and they'd walk away. I don't know if you've ever heard a liberal preacher preach. I have. I've sat in a very large, big, beautiful mainline church uh, in Dallas, Texas. I wasn't a member. I just was going there to observe. And it was the singing. I mean, they had the organ. They had the piano. They had the choir up there, and it was huge. And the old-fashioned, big, beautiful church. The acoustics were beautiful. We sang hymns that we sing. It was beautiful. And uh, the preacher got up, he had a, you know, he had his robe on, he had a great preaching voice. I mean, he, and he was an excellent communicator. He had illustrations and I'm watching, tracking through the passage, you know, and I was there with my family. I was doing a a, a class where I, I could, I had to visit all these different churches and he started out and it was, it was great. He was very good. He got right down through that passage and, and a tremendous uh, exposition to the passage. And he got right down to the punchline and he just stopped. He just kind of folded things up and started talking about lessons for life and things like that. And I'm looking at it. He, he missed the point of the whole passage and I'm kind of squirming around, you know, and I, my wife was starting to go, you know, stop it, stop it, stop it. And I'm saying, well, he missed the point of the whole passage, you know, and, but he did. So, but everything was so good up to that point. But as a liberal, he could not bring himself to talk about the, the, the actual point of it that is in the text of Scripture. And that's what goes on out there. goes on all the time, all over the place. So, um, we have to let it tell us what it says. But then number three, don't overinterpret. It's possible to overinterpret. And this is part of what I think uh, Dr. Zuck is trying to avoid. Don't park yourself on a particular verse or an issue and then want to squeeze and wring out of it every little thing that you think is there in the passage. Uh, and I think I used the illustration of the tabernacle in the wilderness, you know, all the parts and pieces and the little co- the colors. That represent this part of Christ and that part of Christ, and and uh, the whole thing represents the sacrifice of Christ, obviously. But you can't then uh, take it apart and uh, uh, make everything there, because if you challenge that person and you say, "Well, could you show me that in the text?" They couldn't do it, because it basically it comes from their imagination.
And then here's a good comment from Bernard Ram. We must not unceremoniously intrude into parabolic interpretation arguments about Calvinism, Arminianism, or Millennialism. They're not there to to uh, be a doctrinal theological argument in that way. They're, you can take them, or once you exegete them, use them to illustrate doctrinal truths, but uh, you have to be careful not to import your theology onto them, even if your theology is right. Okay, And then four, seek the one main simple truth taught in the parable without trying to extract meanings from all the various details of the story, like the tabernacle in the wilderness. Validate your interpretation by the rest of Scripture, including comparisons of the parallel parables in the Gospel. That's a very important exercise. We talked a little bit, I think, a couple times ago about uh, when you exegete a text or a verse, see if you can go find what are called syntactic grammatical parallels to validate it. And uh, since the Bible is coherent and it's it's all connected, it's essentially one story by one author, you should be able to see the coherence from one thing to another. There's not going to be disjuncts or contradictions within the text. And then application, the task of seeing the relevance for life. Since the very purpose of a parable is to reveal and conceal, we need to continuously test ourselves to make sure we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. And in interpreting the parables, Dr. Zuck says, follow the same steps you use in interpreting any portion of Scripture. Again, we can, we can be consistent. And the reason is because our interpretive principles are coming out of Scripture itself. So I'm convinced that if you don't get every little part and piece of what we've studied here over the last several weeks, you come back and look at this in six months or in six years, you should be able to then just pick right up without having to have a radical change in anything. Um, because hopefully our principles are coming right from Scripture. That's a good test of whether something is uh, truly biblical or not. If uh, How does it age, Right. Um, you listen to certain preachers, and uh, they're chasing the culture all over the place. And as the culture changes, they change. If whatever movies are coming out, they they'll they'll talk about those movies and and that type of thing. And and their people are hearing this. Uh, well, it may build a big church. It may uh, be very popular, but it's not scriptural. But you also hear other other preachers who have been consistent biblically through the years, and it's hard to tell when that was preached you look at it listen to a sermon by somebody who's a good bible expositor and faithful to scripture and you say wow that was preached 35 years ago uh it sounds you know very contemporary well he hasn't changed his interpretive methods or his exegetical methodology and that's a that's a good test well what about application well i've just extracted from week five the principles of application Uh, we discover examples to follow for example, Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, Paul in prison. And with the parables, you can learn examples to follow in certain of those. Um, and also you can learn principles of how do you communicate the Word of God? How do you teach? Um, when Jesus taught these parables, that is a very effective way to teach people. And oftentimes it's, it's just a question format. Um, I've always been fascinated with Galatians 2 and how the Apostle Paul confronted Peter. Uh, I think that was I think that passage is the Apostle 
Paul at his finest hour. Because everybody had essentially got wobbly in the knees concerning the gospel, including Peter, including Barnabas. And Paul, from what I can tell in that passage, is the last man standing. And he confronts Peter and he says, I confronted him in the presence of all to his face. Okay, And I've often wondered, do you think Peter had that sword still when Paul confronted him? And, and so what Paul does, read that passage. It's a masterful confrontation. First he asks him a question. How is it that you, you know, and then it's, it's both logical and theological. So it's a, an incredible model of how to confront somebody Especially maybe somebody a little volatile like Peter, uh, you know, who's who's just abandoned or in real danger of abandoning the gospel. So we are convicted of sins to avoid or abandon. We also observe commands to obey. What can I do that I'm not doing? D. We encounter the promises of God. Always very important. What is God? What are God's promises to me, personally, but also to the church and so on. We experience the joy of obedience. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18. Last, his last words to the church, by the way, were grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is a, a real quick run-through on the literal method and parables. Basically, you're applying the same principles to parables. And uh, Dr. Zuck does, this is just a tremendous study in parables that he gives with all these different kinds of parables. On page 198, the parables of Jesus, he lists 35 there. Um, I took a class in parables, and it was in the Bible Exposition Department. Very intensive study. I think we had 39. You know, it's going to depend on how you categorize them. Might be a couple of more, might be a couple less. But then he goes through a very good study of the different kinds of, par- of parables and all the different ways and that he is able to uh, just put his finger on all these various kinds of uh, issues that people deal with. Commercial items, farming, domestic, social, religious, civil, and so on. So it's a, it's a good study. And then, of course, the parables of concerning the kingdom uh, are there as well. Um, the kingdom, par- kingdom in the parables on page 209, but then parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Commonly, uh, what you often think about and what you hear is the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Okay, so any thoughts that you might have or comments on parables in Scripture? It's a big study. There's a lot there. And it's well worth your time to, to spend more time studying through these and uh, getting even getting some commentary help to help you to walk through these. So any thoughts or questions you might have? Okay, guys, let's get back to it. And we're going to analyze some allegories here. Taking the literal method and applying it to what are called allegories. And once again, a reminder, this is not allegorizing the Scripture, okay? I just want to keep mentioning that. Well, at the top of page 39, here's our definition uh, in the area of observation. A story, poem, or picture which can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. The word comes in late Middle English via Old French and Latin from the Greek allegoria, 
allos other and agoria speaking. Now, this is a secular definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. From Dr. Zuck, page 221, an allegory is a narrative or word picture which may or may not be true to life with many parts pointing symbolically to spiritual realities. When I first learned about allegories, the definition was it's a it's not a true story. But the the definition, according to Dr. Zook, includes may or may not be a true story. Classic example, of course, Pilgrim's Progress, right? That's a made up story. It's a made up story, all these different parts and pieces with spiritual truths, trying to communicate spiritual truths. And again, the chart on page 92 uh, would help us to see that, I think, a little bit. Um, actually, it's on page 91. The difference between a metaphor and an allegory, and you can see plurality of main verbs and mixture of tenses as opposed to one main verb. So some of this is simply the how complex they are. And then you can see the rest of the differences there between a metaphor and an allegory. So, interpretation, the task of seeing the meaning. Interpret points of comparison that are explained or interpreted in the passage. Don't interpret details and allegories that are not explained in the passage. Again, it can be kind of easy to take something from the outside and impose it, or maybe take your theology and impose it on that, and uh, we can't do that. The key is to determine the main point of the allegory, and Dr. Zuck deals with that in his um, in his uh, text. And again, the application, the task of seeing the relevance for life. Same thing from week chapter five. All of the all of the um, things that we would do to draw out the meaning for life. For all of these areas, we would just apply these same things to see what to do, what not to do, and that type of thing. On page 222 in, in his text, he goes over several of these allegories. Even Psalm 23, the Lord as the believer's shepherd, right at the top of the list there. And of course, many from the Old, several from the Old Testament. Jesus again as shepherd, the good shepherd passage or chapter in John chapter 10. Jesus as a vine, I am the true vine. First Corinthians and so on, workers as builders. Um, so we want to we want to go through that uh, process. Note the points of comparison that are explained in the passage itself, and uh, those are those are he develops those uh, quite extensively throughout the uh, the text. And uh, being very careful not to impose on the text, once again, what's not actually in the text. Because you need to keep asking the question, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? That ought to be a question that's always rotating around in your thinking whenever you're trying to interpret anything from the text. Well, it means this. Well, how do I know? And see if you can't validate it from the text itself. So... Again, application, what do I do? And, and um, all these different things are part of that application process. Okay, so any thoughts you might have? That's a fairly short uh, part of our study tonight. Anything you might have? Comments on allegories or parables? Pretty big study. Uh, there's a lot there. 
But uh, hopefully if you apply, consistently apply the literal methodology that we've been talking about, you're going to come out with what it means. So you're able to do it. So, well, I think it, it uh, yeah, they don't, they don't always have to do both of those things. Parable can do something else. So um, I'm not sure I would do that. I, I can't think of a, a reason to try to do that. I'm, I know I wouldn't be smart enough to know how to discern that. Jesus could. Um, he knew who was a believer and who wasn't. I don't have that capacity, so I don't think I would do it that way. <laughs> so, but I think you can still, you can still um, use that type of a. One of the questions you're going to have to, to deal with next time is from Second Samuel 12, where Nathan confronts David about his sin. He basically tells him a story, right? And he engages David. And remember, David just gets very angry at that. So that's that's one of the things that uh, one of the ways he does that. Just tells him a story. He he lays that story down to get him to make a judgment, and he does. And he's angry enough to execute this guy that did what Nathan said he did. And yet Nathan says, "You're the man." Bam. So the parable had its effect there. That story had its effect. So. That's kind of how I would see it. Uh, it's a way. It's a way to to even confront somebody in sin without actually saying you did this. Uh, to engage them in that story and get them involved in it, thinking about it. So, okay. Anything else, Simon? Yeah, I would say I would say verse ten is an important statement because it's a generalization and a and a principle. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Am I in the right spot here? Um, If then you, here comes the application, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I say that's the punchline and uh, a clear statement of a dichotomy. Make your choice. Who do you want to serve? Who or what? Um, that's kind of how I would approach it. Without without getting too tangled up in all the details of how what's going on with the the handling of the money and the handling of the riches and all that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that what you see right there, and we're going to be talking about that. Can't think of it's next time. Uh, yep, number five next time. I talk about expositional statements. An expositional statement is is textually derived but not text-bound or not time-bound, okay? And so I think you see these in Scripture, and also it's good preaching technique. One of the things that makes John MacArthur an excellent preacher and a great expositor, he is an absolute master at making expositional statements. He makes them so fluidly and effortlessly, you don't even notice it. He'll, He'll talk about the text, and 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 he's he's giving you exegetical statements. Those are text bound, t- 
time-bound statements from the text, but then he'll say a, he'll give an expositional statement that's a universally true statement that's text-derived but not time-bound or text-bound, and it it becomes that portable thought that you get from him. And uh, you, you don't even know he's doing it, really. But what you walk away with is an understanding of the Bible and thinking that's a really good teacher, <laughs> okay? Because he's so good at making expositional statements. Listen to one of his sermons. He'll 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 go from exegesis to exposition, just statements right after the other. And so when you look at that, um, verse ten, that is an expositional statement. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. It's, it's not, it's from the story, but it's not bound to the story. It's a universally true statement that's timeless. Okay. And, uh, you're going to see that next time as you look at, uh, at, uh, uh, Proverbs 5 and try to draw out and make expositional statements. So I'd say I'd say that that definitely you could apply that. I mean, you can just think of the what about the stewardship of people that are running our country and in, responsible for billions of dollars. Uh and the power and the money and the money, the power and the power and the money, right? Um are they faithful with what they have, the stewardship that they have? Same thing. You can take that same principle and tell your kids about it. How do you handle a dollar allowance or two dollars? You know. So, just off the top of my head, that's kind of how I would look at it. Anything else? In other words, if you look at that, just go back to that parable, chapter sixteen, verse one. He also said to the disciples, "There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions." So you could you would say Jesus taught his disciples um, with a parable concerning um, concerning possessions and management of money. That's an exegetical statement because it's from the text, text bound and time bound. Jesus did this right there. But then, as it develops, you would you would make possibly come and make a, a an expositional statement like. Whenever, so it's not time-bound, whenever we handle money, we should be faithful with the money that we handle, especially if it's not our own. That's an expositional statement based on that. Maybe a crude example off the top of my head, but that's... Listen to a MacArthur sermon, and you can, you can hear and watch and hear him do that. I should, we should get one up here sometime. We can stop and start it, because it's such an excellent... Have you noticed that about him? You've you sat under his teaching quite a bit. So, anything else? Yeah. Um, the exegetical statement would be more on the observation end of things. I'd say down toward the application end when he says, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? That is an application. He's putting it right back in their lap. He's told the story, but then he makes the application to them. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what is that which is your own? So in the area of preaching, teaching, exposition, that would be homiletics. That would be a homiletical statement or a statement of putting it 
putting the application right on somebody to do that. So it's all it's all right there. Jesus was a master preacher and teacher. I mean, he you know he knew how to engage people. He knew how to tell a story that they could clearly see, and then he just boom puts his finger right in their chest, metaphorically speaking, of course. <laughs> okay, guys, anything else? Um, I just want to remind you. Pretty important for next time. Um, appendix pages 93, it should say 93, 94, down at the bottom of page 40 there, the quotations for week 11, and then that article on page 100. Let's take a look at page 93, 94 real quick here. There's an article on what is prophecy and what does it mean to prophesy. Page 93 and 94, pretty good article there. And then quotations, page 98, down at the bottom. One of them is from uh, Dr. Walvert on eschatology, because we're going to be talking about prophecy next week, and this is a massive area of uh, discussion and debate. It would be well worth your time to read these. And then that quotation from Walvert down there on the bottom Third line down, here as in no other feral. Anybody know what a feral is? I don't either. It should be field. Okay, thought I'd just correct that. Boy, you can't find good typists nowadays, you know. should be field, not feral. That is, this quote is from the introduction to Dr. Pentecost's book on prophecy. That's where that comes from. So we're going to be talking about that, and then there's then there's other quotations on um, on prophecy on page ninety nine, and then down at the bottom there um, is the Pentecost quote concerning the uh, the reestablishment or not of the sacrificial system, and then on page one hundred a hermeneutical issue. Um, we're going to get a little polemic next time, maybe. Okay, so. Um, very important to understand what's going on out there, good, bad, or indifferent. And uh, we're going to be talking about what validates a doctrine. And this hermeneutical issue is really critical um, because part of the criticism historically of premillennialism and so on is, and uh, the issue of uh, um, that type of thing is that it's just recent. It's very recent, you know, and they, they link it to John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. So your theology didn't, didn't even exist prior to John Nelson Darby. Uh, that is, number one, it's just patently and, and uh, easily demonstrably not true because you can find that position in the, even the patristic writers. When they wrote on it, they were premillennial in the early uh, first early centuries of the early church. But uh, this, this is a little article about Dr. William C. Watson. He's with the Lord now. He died in 20, 2020. He was a scholar of um, 16th and 17th century uh, clergymen in, in Europe and England, particularly in England. He was studying uh, for his work, and he's a Christian, he was studying for his work some area of, of the clergy of, of that era, and I can't remember. It might have been their political positions and that kind of thing. Uh, 
So he's rummaging around in these old libraries, Cambridge and Oxford, spending his time there. And he's studying these, these original books that are, were written by these guys four, five, six hundred years ago, right? And guess what he keeps running across? Statements about the rapture and even the statement left behind. If you miss the rapture, you will be left behind, okay? Now, part of the kind of the ridicule and mockery of uh, the premillennial position or the, the pre-tribulation rapture position is that, you know, it's just kind of silly. It's like all that uh, prophecy nut stuff, you know, and, and the, the left behind series of books, you know. And uh, But when you can find that very statement left behind in these ancient sources, he documents it there. So he, the, he has several um, uh, messages that are at this pre-trib research center. You can download them and listen to them. I've listened to them multiple times. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it just it just blows out of the water any any contention that, that the premillennial position is recent. Okay. Number one, you can prove it exegetically from the text of scripture. So it's it's not not recent. <laughs> What's that? Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is is one way to look at it. Um, that one's that one is is true also kind of ridiculed because of its uh um its um its eschatology but um the premillennial position is really what they don't like because of the um uh, the issue of the millennial kingdom and the way prophecy if prophecy in the in the bible has to be taken literally and we're going to apply our methodology to it then it does prophesy a future earthly kingdom with Christ as the king, and with the restoration of the nation of Israel in uh, prominence in that kingdom. And that's what the other positions do not like and can handle it, especially the medieval kings. They didn't like the idea of a Jewish king coming back and having power and the uh, restoration of the, the Jewish people. So it's a gigantic issue, but that'll that'll help you put it in perspective. And uh, that article, but also those messages are good to listen to. And uh, what he also found out was he was able to do more research with the invention of the uh, search engines and also the the digitizing of these old books. They began to do that and put these out, and you could subscribe to these services where you can just call up online these these old books and just read it for yourself. So you don't even need to travel to Cambridge or Oxford to uh, dig around in some old library. But uh, anyhow, that's, that's for next time, and um, it's going to be an important study. And it's it might be kind of an eye-opener for some of you, okay? But it's okay. Have your eyes open. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.